This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That Delighted to say that I'm joined on Football CFB by, in my opinion, the voice of football for me growing up because of the ITV Champions League coverage, Clive Childsley. Thank you so much for joining me. Pleasure. The first thing I want to ask you about, something you're up to at the moment, I've noticed on Twitter that people can buy your notes from some of the most high-profile games you've commentated on. For me, I think that's a wonderful idea. How can people access that? Uh, we have a, a website, uh, www.commentarycharts.com. Um, they are prints of the authentic match notes that I, I would produce for a, for a major game. The nine original games that we've chosen um, are all involving English Premier League teams. Um, we've do have a page um, for suggestions um, and we are already getting suggestions for other clubs and other matches uh, to cover so we're um, eyes open ears open a few Celtic Rangers fans coming on interestingly um, but um, we uh, we've started with sort of big games that I've essentially been involved with Champions League finals um, title deciders and so on they are uh, framed or uh, rolled uh, a4 or a3 um yeah there are there are there are uh, an interesting kind of piece of football memorabilia in in so much that they don't actually tell you anything about what happened in the game itself of course it's it's a snapshot of kickoff it is the the um the people who haven't seen them before my uh, commentary charts which are not unique at all to me um but we, we all do them in a slightly different way but essentially, there are a couple of team lists with some biographical information, uh, goal-scoring information, background information. So they are kind of what I look down on um, when uh, when the uh, the presenter hands to me just before the game, uh, and they, you know, they're my sort of um, comfort blanket during the course of the game in terms of data and information pertaining to that game so if if you you know if you wanted one and you wanted to sort of hang it in whatever an office or downstairs loo or bedroom whatever um then I, what i hope is that people for whom that match means something will look at it and kind of remember where they were you know their own memories of it um you know, where they watched it if they were there if they watched it on tv uh, whatever so it's um in that in that sense, it's a it's a different kind of memento. What well, well, I don't want to make this incredibly political in regards to sort of TV broadcasting, but something that I'm passionate about, and I've spoken to John Nicholson, I know who you know quite well too, is the fact that there's no Champions League football live on terrestrial TV. For me, that is a is a great loss because, as I said to you at the start of this, there. My memories have grown up were hearing you on ITV and getting those big European matches. Yeah, I mean, as far as um, English football was concerned, the summer of 1992 was um, was the big game changer in, in, in television coverage. Uh, 1992 was when the Premier League started in England. Um, it, it was essentially the start of the Champions League. Um, it was when um, B Sky B arrived as a major player in uh, in you know subscription broadcasting as a as a as a, a pay sports channel, and um, I mean it's it's kind of chilling to remind ourselves that there has never been a Premier League game live on free to air terrestrial television. Um, you know all the goals that. Alan Shearer scored in the Premier League, all the goals that Wayne Rooney scored in the Premier League, all the goals Thierry Henry or Sergio Aguero scored in the Premier League uh, have all been scored behind a paywall. And um, I mean, people get around that paywall in different ways, some more legal than others. 
um, if if they can't afford the subscriptions at home, then obviously they you know they can go to a pub and, and watch the game. Um, but I mean, the television audiences don't tell you everything. Um, but watching television is a kind of democracy. You choose to do it. You can turn off if you want. And so the number of people who are, who are tuned in to any television program, whether you like it or loathe it, whether you're a fan of the soaps or not, you know, they're popular. And um, in a commercial world, anything that's popular um, is, is going to be out there. Anything that's legal that's popular is, is going to be out there. Um, and Champions League football on ITV, when it was free to air, uh, would regularly, even for group games, you, you'd get a peak audience of, say, six to seven million um, I mean, if Manchester United or Liverpool were involved, you might add a million and a half to that. And then when you got into the second part of, of the season and started to build up towards the final, I mean, the first final I did in 99 or the first big game I did in 99 was watched by 20 million people. Now, the peak audience for a game on BT Sport, Champions League game, is going to be about 2 million, 22. <laughs> I mean, that that is the difference in the reach. And that's not because ITV were better than BT. It's nothing whatsoever to do with production values or commentators. Or It is just the, the model. And um, it is just worth remembering that there are still more households in the UK with no access to Sky Sports than there are that, um, that you know, that have uh, Sky Sports. Uh, Netflix is growing and uh, the consumption of media is growing in different ways. Streaming is big. I think... Um, uh, on demand will become bigger. I think in the future we'll buy matches, the matches we want to watch rather than subscribe on a monthly or an annual basis. Um, you know, it is, it's a constantly changing landscape, but ultimately, unless you can afford to, um, to pay the, the subscription or um, you're very, very fiendish indeed, yeah, you, you can't watch Champions League money for free. The Champions League football for free in the UK. Absolutely. And as I say, for me, that's a great loss. I know BT have made some of their coverage free to air, particularly the finals on YouTube, etc. But as I say, there's just something missing from from it being on terrestrial TV. And, and the example I would use for that is, and you've got great experience of, 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 of being part of the coverage, is the European Championships and the World Cup. I mean, what's it like being involved in those when they're on ITV? Because you know what it's like, especially in, in 2018 with England, the audience figures were absolutely through the roof for obvious reasons. What's that like? And they were for the Women's World Cup the following year on the BBC, which was free to end. And um, so, and and actually, you know, without labouring the point, because um, I, I think so much has changed in, in the consumption of media. And, um, you know, we've all got to be across that and appreciate that. Uh, and communal viewing is uh, you know, much more prevalent now than it was even 10 years ago. Um, and the viewing figures don't take that into account wholesale, partly because the model for commercial stations like ITV is, is, advertise, is based on advertising revenue. And in that communal environment, as with catch-up television, those, you know, the, 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 the value of the, the of of commercials is compromised by people fast forwarding or just you know talking to each other during them so that you haven't got as captive an audience as you had um unless it becomes that kind of national event of um of a major uh, tournament game and um it the the tournaments have um um they have a narrative which is ongoing almost night by night um to the point where if, if there are a couple of good games at the start of a tournament, and particularly if um, one of the home nations is doing well in the tournament, then you finish up watching, you know, Paraguay versus Neptune or something anyway, you know, because it's on and it's, and it's sort of part of the story. And that's, um, you know, that then you, you get a momentum. And, and we talk a lot in television about the national conversation and, um, you know, particularly at a company like ITV, uh, where revenue, advertising revenue, we don't have that subscription model. Uh, and if you can become part of the national conversation, either as uh, I'm a celebrity or as Coronation Street or Emmerdale or whatever, that, then it, it, it becomes almost um, a self-perpetuating sort of rolling ball gathering, you know, more and more interest. And 
And if you're not part of, the, if you, if you, you know, if there is a, a great drama series going on at the moment, and you know you're in company of three people who are absolutely hooked on it, automatically you've got to go and catch up. You've got to go and find out what is. Whatever he's talking about, you know, whatever it is, Ozark or Breaking Bad or whatever. Yeah, I need to see this thing. So you know, a tournament can be a little bit like that, uh, and and it does. It is. Yeah, I mean, we had I think 28 million for the England semi-final um, at, at the last um, World Cup, and that is they're extraordinary television numbers. For people who are not aware of, you know, the the, the kind of relative scale, something like uh, an I'm a Celebrity final night or a Strictly final, you know, you'd get maybe 15, 13, 14, 15. So you're talking pretty much to everybody, and. Um, uh, it is, um, it's very exciting, it's quite challenging, particularly in the Twitter age, um, but it is a different kind of broadcast from even the Champions League final on BT Sport. It, it is, you're talking to a different profile of audience and, um, you know, part of my sort of teaching in, um, in, in the broadcast business and what I pass on when I'm speaking to guys like you to, in a media undergraduates is that 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 you know you know what is communication 101 you serve your audience you communicate with your audience so you've got to identify your audience first and foremost before you do anything before you even start to talk about prep or pronunciations or all these sort of minor issues to do with commentary the first responsibility of the commentator as with the uh, news presenter as with um you know political correspondent is to recognize your audience and serve them Absolutely, absolutely. And in terms of those big tournaments, you're a passionate man about your country, as as we all are. Obviously, as you can hear from my accent, I'm from Scotland. So no. I was <laughs> I was I was three years old when Scotland last got to a major tournament. So I've sadly not had the chance to witness that. I've spoken to Craig Brown on the podcast and the stories he was telling me is just it's made me desperate to see Scotland back at a major tournament, but for well, you? Not least because it was every major tournament back then. You know, it, it, there, were, there was almost a generation of Scottish people who didn't know what it was like not to, to, to have a team at the World Cup. Um, so, it, it, yeah, and I, it is, for somebody of my generation, I mean, it's a fascinating story, which has never really been told in full. When you think how prominent Scottish footballers were in the English professional game, I mean, great Snowbeer's word in 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 all sports but truly great footballers and then you look at the um the landscape of the great managers of the 70s 80s 90s and into the noughties um i mean how many how many of them were born within 20 miles of glasgow let alone scotland um it, and and then you, you look at today and and you know i think obviously there there are huge sort of social social uh, ramifications really for um you know the relative relative paucity of talent that's coming out of scotland and it's not just scottish football that's suffering it's um yeah you know the, there are there are gaps on the in the squads of 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 so many english teams just because there are you know there hasn't been that influx of of, of scottish talent uh, in in recent years so yeah i mean that and the Scottish fans definitely, I mean, just as the Irish fans bring their own kind of flavour to whenever um, the Republic are involved in a tournament, Scottish fans certainly brought something very, very different to to World Cups in, in you know, my earlier days. Well, as I say, I hope it can, it can happen again in the future. And you're very I'm married to a Scot, by the way, so, you know. <laughs> I never know. You see, you learn something new every day. And, and for yourself, you... I am envious in the fact that you're from England. You get to see your country at a major tournament quite a lot compared to us. I am envious of that. I won't lie. What's it they like? They still though? break our hearts, Carl. They still do it. They just do it a bit later. <laughs> <laughs> what is it like when you're commentating in those games? Because, for instance, when you're commentating on, let me see, a final in the Champions League between Real Madrid and Manchester United or Barcelona, Manchester United, whatever it may be, you you might not have a vested interest in that game as such. You're obviously commentating as a neutral, but yeah. I imagine when you're commentating for the nation that 
that you were born in and that you love as a football team, is it is it hard to stay impartial at all? Is, how do you handle that? Well, I, I, I take you back to the point which I, I, I make with, with um, boring repetition. You serve your audience. And um, I, think, um, I think the audience during an international tournament is different from the, the audience for a, a major Champions League occasion because I think the tribal nature of club football does mean that, you know, there are, if Liverpool or Manchester United are playing in a final, there are probably as many ABUs out there as there are United fans, you know. Um, I mean, I, I think that probably started to change somewhere in the 1980s into the 90s, maybe. I mean, I was very conscious walking back to our hotel in Barcelona that night in 1999. So whether I kind of oversold it and whether effigies would be hanging from lampposts in Manchester and Leeds and West London of, of, you know, and Liverpool of, of, of you know, me. <laughs> um, but I, I think that was a little bit different because of the, the, the nature of the achievement, the travel and the way it was done, and the fact they beat a German opponent. And we had, English football fans hadn't seen too many distraught German fans for, for a long time. And the fact that it had been such a long time since the European Cup had come back to England. So, but you, you've got to be conscious of that, I think, with, with club teams. Um, you've got to be conscious of, with the national team because you do have to be objective. That's really important. Um, but uh, again, recognising your audience and that feeling of momentum you get. If uh, And we had it with Wales, you know, uh, two years earlier. I did the semi-final, the Welsh semi-final um, in 16. Um, yeah, you, there are a lot of people watching who desperately, desperately want Wales or England to win more than don't want them to win, um, more than really don't care. So you've got you've got to recognise that, and without becoming a tub thumper or a you know some kind of sort of deranged patriot, you, you I think I don't think it's the biggest crime in the world if the occasional wee slips in there. Um, I've got a great story which I tell a lot actually about the first. England uh, live England game that I ever commentated on, which was against Scotland at Wembley in the playoff for the um, uh, Euro 2000. And um, uh, some of the people watching may not be old enough to remember, but it was played over two legs. Uh, first was at Hamden, and England won 2 0 at Hamden. So they came back to Wembley three or four days later in a very, very strong position in, indeed uh, and set to qualify. And um, I had Ron Atkinson, an Englishman, commentating alongside me for the whole of the UK. Um, and Scotland dominated the first half um, and scored. Um, and from the very beginning, Ron was talking about we and they. And um, I was getting earache from my producer, who could talk to me, but not to him. And I was scribbling notes to Ron, sort of pushing, and he was pushing them back. And we had a great relationship then, you know, irrespective of what happened uh, later. I mean, we, ha we had a really, really strong personal relationship. And a half time <laughs> when, the, when the microphone was switched off, I kind of laid into him and said, Ron, what? You know, and he said, he said, am I saying that we're playing well? And I said, no, but you can't say we, you've got to say England. He said, why? He said, everybody in Scotland knows I'm English. Everybody in Scotland knows that I want us to be playing well and to win 9-0. He said, but we're not. We're losing 1-0. We, we are not playing well. I'm criticising us. He said, I'm, I'm being objective. And um, I thought about that to, from that day forward. And I think particularly in kind of popular television, I think you're kidding yourself if, if you're so proper and so correct that you, that you hide all, the, all your emotions and you're not serving your audience. You, 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 and... Um, I, I don't think we had any complaints from Scotland that night um, about Ron saying we, because as he said, everybody north of the border and every, every Scot watching south of the border would recognise that this was an Englishman, but he was calling it as it was. Scotland were on top. Absolutely. And it's an interesting point you raised there. And in terms of co-commentators, how important is it to try and build a good personal relationship with them as well as a professional one so that the on-air chemistry works? Well, I, I've been very, very fortunate. Just about every co-commentator that I've worked with um, 
as uh, has been a personal friend, some very close personal friends. And um, irrespective of the time you spent together on air, particularly during that international tournament in the summer, you spent an awful lot of time uh, in hotel receptions at 5.30 a.m. having got up for a, another trip to sit in another traffic jam and wait for another delayed flight. So you do, it is better when you're spending that time and, and you get physically a little tired during the first couple of weeks of those tournaments because you may be doing two games every three days with the journeys. And when the tournament's played in a country as large as Brazil or South Africa or whatever, then you're talking two and a half, three hours. I think we had a four and a quarter hour flight in Brazil, internal flight. So yeah, it's very, very important to have that. Um, and the, two, the two big points I would make about co-commentary and relationships. One is just the kind of the, the grammar of it. What is the co-commentator? The co-commentator is someone who's been down there in the middle where we will never, most of us will never go uh, and who's come back to tell us what it's like and why it happens the way it happens. The analysis, they've got to add something. They mustn't be echoing what I'm saying. They must be adding to what I'm saying. So that's, that's an important relationship. And it's important that you don't bump into each other very often and that you have your, you kind of build up what feels like a natural relationship, but they are two different roles. And I think it's important that they're defined as two, as two different roles. Um, moving on to, I think, a kind of modern trend towards what I call a, a sort of sports bar chumminess. Um, and I, this isn't like an old school view because I try not to become a grumpy old man and I'm always listening to other commentaries and, and commentary teams and trying to learn from them um, but I, I do think that if you become too familiar and it becomes too much about the partnership and there's this kind of stream of consciousness going on and almost like private jokes you are starting to climb the stairs to Statler and Waldorf's balcony really and and I, I do I do worry about the way it's going. And and when we return, um, I, it will be interesting to see how commentary adapts to empty stadia. And I think almost naturally, and maybe correctly, we will talk a little bit more. I think there will be less pauses. So maybe the commentary will become a little bit more conversational. But I think there are dangers with that because good, good broadcasting should be inclusive. It's not, it's not me... Glenn Hoddle and I talking to each other. It's Glenn Hoddle and I talking to you, and 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 as soon as we start to talk too much to each other, and particularly when we get oh well we're together in Munich again tomorrow. Well, I'm sorry, that's not why I'm going to be watching that game. I'm not turning on for you. You know, this is not uh, the Jonathan Ross show. I'm not turning on for you. I'm turning on for the football. You know, get your thick heads and your vanities around that because that's what's important, not you. Not your little in-jokes, not, you know, where you ate last night. I don't care about any of that. I don't personally. Uh, and so I think the relationship should be good, but I think it should be professional. That's a very, very interesting point. And I agree with that because since, obviously, normally the traditional co-coms would be one co-commentator, but now you're getting two co-coms pretty regularly and that sometimes can lead to that chumminess in the sense that not just one person talking to someone else it ends up sometimes as you've said rightly said becoming a group conversation bef between those three people that you're kind of listening into which can be quite strange sometimes yeah that, and I think I think you're spot on I think that's that's my fear I I, I think it can work I I, I um I, I often that again when I'm talking to your guys and seminars and stuff um you know, the, the two rules of commentary um, uh, and, and rule one is, that, you know, what do I say to a, a new co-commentator I'm working with? There are two rules. One, that I split the, the pitch up into essentially three thirds. The, the middle third is open, you know, you, you can have a go, say, speak whenever you want, maybe give me a nudge so that we don't bump into each other, but you've got any analysis, any consideration to offer, away you go when the ball's in the third. If it gets in either the danger zones, the, the two end thirds, it would be better if you weren't talking about high, high defensive lines when, you know, um, whoever, Luis Suarez, smashes the ball into the top corner, because that's kind of where I should be doing the shouting and screaming. What's rule two? Rule one is optional. And so occasionally you will break that rule because 
Um, there was a famous goal scored by Steven Gerrard um, against Olympiakos. Uh, Martin Tyler was the lead commentator. Andy Gray was the co-commentator. And as soon as it's gone in, Andy Gray's in. He's, he's not waiting for the replay. He comes in with his famous, uh, what a hit, son, what a hit. It, fine. I, I, you know, I think at that moment, with that goal, with that co-commentator, that worked. I wouldn't want, you know, I don't know Andy. I mean, I, I would be saying to him afterwards, that was great tonight, absolutely great. But don't make a habit of it, all right? You know, the, pick your moment to do that. Let the emotion override the, the kind of grammar of the relationship. So I think we have to, I, I you know, try to watch back and listen back to every uh, game that I do. I obviously watch back and listen to an awful lot of um, my colleagues and I'm always trying to analyze commentary and and I saw a documentary about um, Peter Sellers the other night who was um, a kind of comic actor uh, in the 1960s 70s absolutely brilliant brilliant man made some wonderful movies and was part of the goons the original goons and and, and really kind of changed the 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 mood of, of British comedy and during the documentary Steve Coogan was being interviewed and he was talking so earnestly and so gravely about Sellers' skills. It looked like he was um, discussing a murder case, not a comedian, but of course it's a craft. And even though the rest of us appreciate it without any real thought, somebody's either funny or they're not to us, an awful lot of thought will have gone into trying to be funny. It, it may seem natural, but actually there's an, an unnatural amount of analysis that goes on by the craftsmen, by the comedians, by the professionals, in order to try to make themselves funny. And in a way, that's I, I bore people with my analysis of commentary, but it may seem a little detailed, but actually by looking at the detail, hopefully I and we can, can you know, produce a, a, a means of communication during a football match which we've given so much thought to that it actually sounds quite natural. Absolutely. And I want to ask you a few technical questions about commentary. <laughs> One of the things that I'm fascinated by, and, and it's, it's quite relevant now because of this current situation, off-tube commentary, how strange can that be? Well, it's hairy because you are, I mean, I've in the last year, you know, I've commentated on games 500 miles away from where I'm sitting. And so I'm seeing exactly what you're seeing. Um, and just on little, t again, looking at the detail of it, if the particular director, the, the, the man or woman who's calling the shots, choosing which shot we see from the whatever 20 cameras available in the, in the stadium, if their style is to go close up on a corner taker and stay with that close up until pretty much after the ball has left the foot, then as it, as the next shot is cut up, which is the wide shot of a crowded penalty area and somebody trying to get their head on it, you've got almost a subliminal look at who is in there. Now, if I'm in a stadium watching a corner being taken, I'm not looking at the corner taker at all. I'm just looking at this crowd of people in the penalty area, trying to pick them all out so that as, if, you know, McFadden rises and heads into the far corner, I can give you a great big, you know, bellowing shout you know hope it, hope i got it right um so that again is changing your technique so it's a bit more dangerous and therefore a little bit more difficult and so i don't think i would take as many chances with that kind of shout i think you'd try to sort of um rein in your sort of um uh macho instincts in terms of trying to shout out the goal scorer but you know i think it has a benefit because going back to what we've just been talking about, what I call this kind of stream of consciousness style of conversational commentary, just almost you know, talking without thinking, thinking out loud, really, which I, I think tel the television commentator shouldn't have to do. And I actually think when you watch, when I do, do a game off tube, I'm, just, um, I'm literally dependent upon the same pictures that you can see. It actually gives me a better discipline and I focus more on what you can see and, and you are the viewer, you are my customer, you are the most important people and actually it becomes a bit of a diversion when I'm talking about stuff that you can't see 
Um, so I actually think it, it, in a funny sort of way, it tidies up your commentary to do a few off-tubes from time to time, even though it's a little more perilous. Uh, indeed, and the, the next technical question I've got for you <laughs> is radio commentary versus TV commentary. What are the differences? Because they clearly are different arts, although they can be similar. Well, one difference overrides all the others. Um, and it's where you've got to start. Um, you're not as important in television. And you've got to get your, again, you've got to get your, your ego around that. Um, it's a visual medium. Um, most important person in a, a live television broadcast is that person, the director, the match director, who, who calls the shots. Um, you are following him or her, you should be. Um, most of us would have um, a feed, an audio feed of the conversation that that person is having with their cameras during the game. So we're talking and listening at the same time because, um, you know, they're, they're setting the agenda of you, like the, the visual agenda for what you're seeing. And you're just the accompaniment. You're just the soundtrack to the movie. And uh, I mean, there have been some great movie soundtracks, but nobody ever goes to the cinema to listen to the soundtrack. They go to watch the movie and, and the soundtrack hopefully enhances, um, enhances that. So, and, and you know, how many, how many dramatic moments in uh, TV or movie dramas where there is some dialogue and music going on in the background and you're thinking, you say, why, why do we need this music? Let's just listen to them. You know, it, it is dramatic. No need to dramatize it. So, as the soundtrack, as commentators, we can spoil the movie. There's no doubt about that. We can get, we can get in the way of what, of what you're watching if, if, if we don't accept in television that we are, um, you know, we're secondary. And so the, one of the analogies I draw, often draw is that I think, I think radio commentary comes more from the heart. I think you plug in and go, you, you, you've obviously got a huge responsibility. You've got to describe stuff as well as... Um, as amplify what the viewer is seeing, but you can you, you can kind of follow the script's written. You're unlikely to go very far off onto these conversational tangents because you you can't afford not to be describing what's happening. Something might catch you out. Um, in in television commentary, I think it comes more from the head. I think you, it's a test of concentration. When to speak, what you're going to say next. Um, using the pauses which are important not just from the rhythm and giving the, the viewer a rest but using them as thinking time um, you know they're not a rest for you they're 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 a moment a chance to choose your next words to make sure that your next thought if you've got a thought on the the, the flow of the game is delivered in as succinct and as economical and as accurate uh, means as possible using the language as well as you possibly can you know it's I, I sometimes say we work with exactly the same vocabulary as Stephen King. And I don't know whoever your favorite lyricist is. I like elbow, you know, Guy Garvey. I'm right. I'm, I'm working with the same words that Guy Garvey has. Um, they shouldn't, I, I shouldn't try to imitate him because I'm not creating beautiful love songs. I'm just providing a soundtrack to a, a football match. So I don't think you should overblow the vocabulary. I'm not, you know, I'm not a great fan of the, commentators who seem to be forever writing um you know greetings cards rhymes and uh, that's i don't think that's what we're about but we should use the words well um, and as, as a television commentator you have the luxury of some thinking time and you should pick and choose your words and when you watch back um you should be asking yourself if um if in the, if that situation arises again whether there are better better words that you could use because there are plenty out there Indeed, and I want to focus on some of your greatest games. It was the anniversary recently, as you know, of 99. Manchester United fans, you are an iconic person for Manchester United fans because of that famous commentary. Solskjaer has won it, will always be remembered for the rest of time in football, really, because people will always look back at that treble um, until potentially it's done again, but that's still not happened and we're... 21 years on so in terms of that game describe that whole event because Bayern Munich were all over Manchester United for the majority of that game yeah I don't know if I agree with that I mean I think it was a poor game or, or a relatively poor game 
I don't think Bayern were dominant. I just don't think Manchester United played very well. And they were behind from the fifth or sixth minute. Um, I mean, and Solskjaer has won. It breaks the cardinal rule of commentary. I've waved the winner across the line before the lines appeared. I mean, I, I, you know, I could have been terribly badly found out by that comment. And I'm not, I'm not saying it didn't capture the moment, um, but that's where they've been in hindsight. If Bayern had equalised and it had gone to extra time and they'd won the penalty shootout, which they would have done, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I'd have been... Um, I'd have been hung, drawn and quartered. Um, it was a really, really big match for me um, because in the, after the 98 World Cup, um, the late great Brian Moore retired as ITV's senior commentator. Uh, we knew that was happening. I've been understudying for a couple of years and, um, you know, this was my opportunity. And obviously you can only work with the material that you're given and to have that kind of drama served up to you, you all you've got to do really is... It's a bit like a thrill ride. You just got to climb, climb on board and hang on. And um, yeah, I managed to get the goal scorers right and come up with a few words, which, and it's, you know, yeah, it's nice that they are part of people's recollections of, of a, a special night for, for fans of, uh, of Manchester United. But I don't think there was any, I mean, I, some of it was a little grandiose looking back you know Manchester United reached the promised land okay yeah maybe in the, in that moment again you, I, I think I think there was a, it's it's strange you're probably going to mention Istanbul too and the, the um, <laughs> United and Liverpool fans won't like me comparing the two but in in both Champions League seasons there was a sense of destiny sense of fate sense of something a kind of weird momentum here which you you couldn't ignore and more than that the opponents couldn't ignore either and um i mean i, I don't need to recount the story of, of that treble bid by manchester united but they very nearly went out in the fa cup semi-final should have done probably schmeichel saved a penalty from Bergkamp in the last minute um they were in big big trouble in turin in the uh, in the Champions League semi-final and in the title race was pretty close but they always kind of found a way found a goal and um, so th that was happening and of course in in 2005 the same with Liverpool very nearly went out in the group stage um, scored three times in the second half against Olympiacos um, not a great Liverpool side. Uh, they played better in the 07 final two years later against Milan they played better in that match uh, but with one or two really great performers. Um, and yeah, I mean, the the victory over Juve had, a, you know, a sense of drama about it, the ghost goal in the semi-final against Chelsea. And so in, in both cases, I think that I, I'm, I use the word editorial quite a lot. You know, my big wish when I leave a, a, a match, a, a complete a commentary and put the microphone down, is that my final words, my conclusions on that match will somehow match the opening paragraph of my favourite sports writer the next morning or the headline. That somehow, whatever you know, nonsense has come out of my mouth, that I've actually got the story of the game. As a journalist, I've somehow found the story of the game. And the story of that night was what Sir Alec Ferguson said in his his. You know, the greatest post-match interview ever given football bloody hell <laughs> basically a shrug of the shoulders don't ask me i may be the su most successful british manager of the modern era but i've no idea how we won that game and and that's you know that kind of name on the trophy thing that i said and i think that was what it was that 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 was what it was about really that just this sense of of of, of so it is written something else taking over here uh, and, and very much the same happened to, to Liverpool against Milan in, in, uh, in six years later. In terms of Istanbul, you mentioned the fact that it was an incredible occasion. It's one of the greatest football matches I've ever watched in my lifetime. At <laughs> what point on the commentary did you think Liverpool are in with a shout here? When they, when they equalised. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I did say something that... that Again, I got lucky with hello, hello. Here we go. When they scored the first goal, did I seriously believe that you know they were on the way back? the The first half was hugely one sided, and Liverpool were in disarray. Um, I mean, rough. It's not for me to criticise Rafa 
Benitez, but I mean, he made a big call leaving Didi Harman out of the team. And um, I mean, Kaka ran riot. And uh, there, was, there was a moment midway through the half when Harry Kuehl, surprise, surprise, limped off and Vladimir Smith wasn't ready to come on. And, and that's where they were. And apparently the whole half time in the dressing room was equally chaotic. Um, there's some fairly graphic sort of descriptions of the fact that Rafa gave one team tour with 10 counters on the board and then one with 12 counters on the board. And um, Jimmy Traore was coming off and then and then they decided to bring Finnan off and so on and so forth. And, you know, I mean, Dudek made a save in extra time, which defied any kind of analysis or description. Uh, and in many ways, the best save that he made that night was in the opening stage of the second half. So what I'm saying is the second half didn't start any differently from the first. You know, they scored this delicious third goal on the stroke of half time. And Milan carried on as if, you know, they were going to go on and we'd, I'd spend a little bit of half time looking at record defeats and stuff. So um, there was no sign of it coming at all. Absolutely no sign of it. And when I watched back the whole game, um, ahead of the 07 final when they met again two years later, I'd kind of forgotten that even the equaliser didn't really change the flow of the game a great deal. I, Liverpool didn't suddenly have a really dominant period from, from going from 3-0 to 0-3 to 3-3 in space of less than seven minutes. They didn't go on from there, really. Um, Milan, Milan kind of um, brushed it off and... Um, regain control of the match and, and extra time was very one-sided indeed. Trory made a, a goal line clearance, Dudek made that save, Carragher was throwing himself in front of shot after shot and I don't know how they got through to the um, to the penalty shootout really. As I said, they played better in 2007. So, I mean that, that I suppose the commentary line that you're referring to, which people kind of remember from that night, was uh, a stab in the dark, really. I was just probably trying to drum up a bit of support for the fact that this game isn't quite over, but I didn't truly believe. That in, in the three or four minutes before Sheringham equalised in Barcelona, Manchester United looked like scoring. For the first time all night, they looked like scoring. So in that sense, the equaliser wasn't a shock. I can't say the same about Liverpool in 05. The following year, one of the, the most dominant um, English sides of that era, Arsenal, Final against Barcelona. I'm interested to get your perspective on this. Are you shocked that Arsene Wenger never won the Champions League with that Arsenal team he had? No. I wasn't very good that night. That, um, you talk, I talk about getting lucky. I, nothing terrible. I, I, I made a bit of a mess of the big incident at the start the, with the sending off. and uh, they, the, they, you know, the, There you go. Um, you know, what, what the referee was going to do and uh, um, uh, with with the, um, um, the the free kick on the edge and uh, whether whether it would have been better to have conceded a penalty and had 11 men on the field. I was trying to kind of debate that in my head and um, never quite never quite found the words for it. And um, sometimes when you have a, a bad moment or what you perceive to be a bad moment early in a game, particularly a big game, it takes you a while, if ever, to really get back on top of that game. And I, I didn't have a great night that night. I was, uh, I was maybe fortunate that Arsenal didn't win it in terms of people's recollections of it. Um, I mean, they were really, really good at that time and obviously um, were regular contenders. Um, they came up, they didn't have a great deal of luck with the draws. Uh, I mean, Manchester City haven't had in more recent times. You know, it is a cup competition and uh, you can tiptoe your way through a couple of rounds against fairly limited opponents. Um, that didn't happen to Arsenal. Um, but, uh, I mean, they were, what was it, 12 minutes away, 14 minutes away when the equaliser was scored? They were close. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I suppose um, the... The, the best Arsenal team was probably, arguably, maybe a couple of years before that. I don't know. It, I, 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 I don't remember them playing really, really well that night. But then, as I say, perhaps by overall, I, people often ask me, "Yeah, oh, was that was a fantastic game?" If I haven't had, if I don't think I've had a very good game, 
it's not a fantastic game. I play golf, you know, and um, I've been very fortunate in the last 10 years to play a lot of the great golf courses of the, of, of the British Isles. And um, people ask you, say, well, what do you think of Turnberry? What do you think of, you know, um, Old Head or whatever? A lot of it depends on whether you played it well or not, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, if um, if you paid whatever it is to play at Turnbury, 300 quid or something, and, and you've lost five balls and shot 12 over, then you, you don't think it's much of a golf course. But And it's a little bit the same with, with matches. Um, yeah, I, I kind of look at my own performance first. In terms of your own performance, that's... I'll be honest with you, Clive, I think that's a fascinating insight because that's something I've interviewed several commentators and nobody's really ever said how you reflect on your performance. If you have what you perceive as a bad game, do you take that really to heart on the drive home and think, I'm just, I'm really devastated that was not good enough? I have, honestly, but if the match is away in Europe and we're staying over another night, and I'm not jumping into the car and driving back from Manchester because I'm in wherever, Budapest, you you tend to come down from the commentary position and the, the programme is still on air. And uh, and so you come down to the, the trucks, you know, the big television vans that you sometimes, if you go to a football match, you'll see these big compounds full of great big TV vans. And that's where... Uh, the the the, uh, the match director will sit and 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 then the whoever's editing the studio side of things. So you you might sneak into the back of there for a moment, and and we'll just watch the end of the program just as you're kind of winding down. Um, weird thing, I'm not a smoker. Haven't been a smoker since almost university days. I have about two cigarettes a year, and it's usually after a bad game. At that moment. And there's where in those big TV trucks, there's always a few of the drivers or riggers who are smokers, and I and I just say, hey, come on. And uh, and if I walk down there and somebody says, well done tonight, I can be quiet. I can say, yeah, oh, that was rubbish. And that, and it's terrible, really, because it really puts, you know, they're only trying to be nice, and you know, um, but yeah, I'm pretty grumpy for for 10 minutes or so. And, and, and you're right, the drive home can be a, a, a great place to disappear. Um, if, if, yeah, if you, if, yeah, it's not, you know, I, I'm not, it, hopefully it doesn't happen that often. But equally, I'm never usually, uh, until I've watched a bit of it back, I'm, I'm never quite sure really how it sounded. So, I, and the tip, I live sort of outskirts of London now, even though I'm from the Northwest. And so, you know, a drive home from Old Trafford, say, um, take you 45 minutes to get to the motorway. And then, uh, so probably four hours. And um, I'll kind of listen to a phone in for an hour or so. And then by Birmingham, I've got, I've just got some dance music on. I'm not, you know, I'm just, I'm just sailing home then. Just, uh, yeah, float, always freewheeling home from that point. <laughs> in terms of... United again, obviously that final against Chelsea, um, the, the drama of the penalty shootout. They go from winning that Champions League to the following year against Pep Guardiola's Barcelona. Really, at times, getting a footballing lesson in 2011 as well. Pep's Barcelona, how impressed were you with them during your time commentating? Because they were a, they were the cornerstone of, of, of football at that time. I think that... The performance they gave against Manchester United at Wembley in the first of those Champions League finals might be the best club performance I've ever seen. I, I say I watch games back, it's usually the next day, and it's usually to reflect on what I've done. I, When I got home, okay, I was I, I didn't have a long drive home from Wembley, obviously, so I was home in, back in the house at whatever, 11 o'clock. I think I watched the whole game. I just couldn't believe what I'd seen almost with my own eyes. I almost needed to see it again. And... Um, I was very fortunate at that time. I inherited a really good relationship with Sir Alec Ferguson from my predecessor. I'd worked with his son. Um, my first Boston TV I had a close relationship with him too. So I was pretty, in professional terms, pretty close to Sir Alec at that time. So not only had he helped me a little bit during the day with, with his lineup, he'd, I'd actually had a chat with him on the phone about what, it, what they were trying to do. And, yet, and setting up against Barcelona at that time, you had to go about it slightly differently. You had to. You couldn't just impose yourself on them. You had to recognise 
that they were the best club side in the world. And in order to beat them, you're going to have to come up with something slightly different. Uh, so he talked me through it. And for 10 minutes or so, most of the at the start of the game, did it all. They were terrific. They really were. It was a really, really good start to the game. Uh, and then Barcelona scored. <laughs> oh, uh, I wasn't really part of the plan. And then Manchester United equalised. Uh, but now Barcelona are in control. And honestly, the, it was almost as if Rooney hadn't scored. It, it, was, it was almost as if the Barcelona players looked round at each other. Did you hear something there? Whatever. No, anyway, carry on playing. It just did, and obviously it's a home goal. I mean, nearly everybody in the stadium was a Manchester United fan. Um, but I have never seen a team just respond to a setback so calmly and so capably and just carry on playing as if it was still 1-0 and, and, and soon it was 3-1. And um, they were fantastic that night. Absolutely. And I, I did speak to Sir Alec afterwards and he said, well, there's nothing we really, I, you know, I, I, I would normally be angry and frustrated after a defeat of that kind in that, in that you know, calibre of game, but there wasn't much we could have done. Another interesting moment linked to Sir Alex. It's a game that obviously Jose Mourinho went on to become Manchester United, albeit a few years later to what people maybe thought at the time. The game against Real Madrid in, in the Champions League, the nanny sending off, I mean, that was... Man- I thought... That night, if Manchester United went through, it just there seemed to be some sort of momentum kind of bubbling a wee bit again, maybe because Sir Alex, obviously he knew, by hindsight looking back, he was potentially going to retire quite shortly after. What was that game like to commentate on and what was your opinion of the Mourinho interview after it, which was basically a give me the job? I, do, I think it was a poor decision. Uh, I, I really do. Um, I, I, read, I read the... Um, you know the analysis afterwards um, about the high foot, but I I I I couldn't see how that was dangerous play, and um, so I thought it was a poor decision. I felt I'm not a betting man, but I, I had an inkling, only an inkling, just a feeling, when um, Stradic bought Robin van Persie, that 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 marked the start of his final season. I thought it was. It was kind of an unusual uh, signing for him. It, it, the, he usually signed players with, with more pit, untapped potential than that. And it was almost as if, I'm going to have one more go at this. Uh, you know, how can I guarantee that we'll, we'll win the league? I'll buy the best forward in, you know, in, in the league who's playing for another club. Uh, even though he was, I don't know what age he was, but I'm guessing 28, 29, something yeah. like that, whatever. Um, so I felt all that season that this that this was it. Uh, you talk about the Mourinho interview. I don't think Stralik did an interview, which if he did, it was very, very short. And it was very unlike him because even in those circumstances, he would always sort of see out his responsibility, particularly to television. You know, he, he, could, he could have a bit of a vendetta with the press. And we know he wasn't talking to the BBC for seven years. But uh, he, he kind of saw out his duties with us. And that driving away from that match, I thought, yeah, he's going. This, this was it. This was his last shot at it. Uh, and, yeah, I, you know, they, I don't know how long it was before after that the announcement was made. But um, I, I don't know Jose Mourinho. I've never had – I've worked with, you know, obviously with him. I've never built up any kind of personal relationship with him. Um, it was always said that that was the job that he wanted most of all, most of all, of all, of all the jobs. He wanted the Manchester United job. Um, he he kind of, you know, but I mean, his, you know, his record, you can't, whether you like him or loathe him, you, you, you couldn't argue, certainly at that point in his career, you couldn't argue with his record. Uh, he didn't have to tout for the job as such. His, his achievements and his CV touted for it. Um, but he, He's always, I've got to be careful what I say really, but he's always portrayed as being, oh, yeah, everything that Jose says, it's for a reason, you know, he's thought this through and that he's trying to uh, shield the players and, you know, take take the spotlight himself so they don't um, 
everything has got a, a subtext or a subplot. He's thought this through. He's very clever. I'm not sure. I, I, I think he's actually quite an emotional guy. I think he's got quite a high opinion of himself. And um, I think a lot of those outbursts and so on just, yeah, we're just, you know, his, I don't I mean, we've all got egos. Everybody in broadcasting has got an ego. It's not, it's not an insult to say somebody's got an ego and it's certainly not an insult when you see it through and you achieve what he's achieved. But I think it was usually his ego talking rather than, uh, than any fiendish plot. In terms of your commentary career, when you started, obviously, commentating in the Nottingham area, then obviously going on to the sort of Merseyside scene. I mean, Brian Clough, we've got to talk about Brian Clough. I mean, the achievements that he had with that Nottingham Forest team and the character that he had, just just how great a manager was Brian Clough? Well, um, it, that was my first job in, in broadcasting. And then um, any job in broadcasting was a dream job for me. And the, and I, I joined a radio, I, I was at university in Nottingham and uh, I managed to get a kind of T-boys job at a commercial radio station. And within, I suppose, six months, I was covering Nottingham Forest home and away. And they were a mid-table championship site, really, to, to begin with. Um, so I, I covered the, 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 the season that I covered the most was their promotion season. Although I left, funny enough, I left for Merseyside um, before they were promoted. Um, he, he was really exciting to be around um i mean it, I, i'm not saying anything which everybody doesn't know which he admitted he was drinking by then and um so he was his behavior was erratic um when he was on form he was sparkling um when uh, you know when he was in a mood it was an awful mood um he I mean, he was very good to me, really. Um, he, um, he. I, funny enough, when I left Nottingham, um, I had a little dinner um, with my parents and um, a couple of people who had been good to me. Uh, actually, the, the the youth coach at Forest had had a restaurant, and we had it there. And Alan came, and um, your man walked in. You know, it's not, it wasn't a posh restaurant, but it was kind of restaurant where you went in a jacket and open neck shirt usually. And uh, Eddie came in his um, green tracky top and tracky bottoms, um, probably still had a squash racket in his hand. And he sat down and made a big fuss of my parents. You know, he could, he could do that. I mean, it, and he didn't have to be there. Um, it was really, really special that, wow. that he took the time to come. Um, but he did it kind of in not in his terms, but in his way. Uh, and that I'm actually um, uh, here's a little exclusive for you. I'm actually writing my book at the moment, which um, at the moment the publishers want to bring out in the spring. But I quite like to get out for Christmas because it's all kind of quite current. Um, and um, each chapter is is. In, is named after somebody really, really well known that I've worked with, um, uh, but it's not—it's uh, not an autobiography, and it's—and each like the Cluffy, Cluffy chapter is not specifically about him. Yeah, it's about—it's um, about some of my dealings with him, uh, and s some of the insight that I got into the kind of man that he was. But it was—it, I mean, that chapter is a lot about um, translating talent from one generation to another, basically asking the question, could he have done it today? The Fergie chapter's about control, about you know the importance of control to anybody in any position of power, um, and how you know the only kind of time that his control of Manchester United was really threatened was when he stepped outside his, his turf and, and, you know, went to, went to, to war with uh, John Maglia over Rocket Gibraltar. So, so it's, a, it, so there are themes running through it. And as I say with Cluffy, I, I mean, brilliant and successful as he was, certainly if he'd had the same mannerisms and the same issues uh, in 
as a manager today, I, I don't think it would have worked because, um, he, you know, he, he was a, a, a bit, I'll a, a, be careful really, because I think old school is still around in football. Um, but there's more awareness now of, of people's mental fragility and obviously um, more awareness of the international global nature of football and the diversity of football and a little bit more, so I hope there's a bit more social responsibility within football. And, and Brian wasn't of that generation, you know, he was, um, he, he was a very practical 1970s football manager. He was from a big family in Teesside, not a, not a great education, uh, had a really bad injury when he, when his career was blossoming as a player. Um, but this, you know, the kind of, if, if you, if you, if you YouTube the interviews that, uh, um, that he gave, that you couldn't talk like that today. You, I, and, and, and there's a chapter about Shanks, about Bill Shankly, who of all the people I've met in football is the one that I would love to go back and spend some more time with. Um, but again, it, 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 they were very much men of their age. And whereas Fergie adapted during the course of his management time and managed Ronaldo differently from how he'd managed gigs sort of six, seven years earlier, uh, and was always adapting. And I, I speculate, actually, in what I've written, that the fact that he had three boys of a similar age to uh, the players, one of whom he actually gave 30 appearances to, Darren, um, I think sort of kept him in tune with the changing times and the changing need to parent and manage in a different way. I'm not sure that Cloughy would ever quite got his head around the need to, do, to make those changes. One of your current colleagues who I'm desperate to, to ask you about is Glenn Hoddle. Um, and the reason I want to ask you about Glenn is because you mentioned at the start of this interview in the Twitter generation, it can be harder doing commentary cold comms because a lot of people online behind a, a, an anonymous alias can just throw things out there and, and be abusive, which I don't like to see. Glenn sometimes gets a wee bit of stick on Twitter, as you know, but just how much does he know about football? Because... Anyone who's played under him, to be fair, you see Ian Wright and the respect he's got for him on ITV when he talks. Everyone always says, tactically, best coach I've ever had. Yeah, and there's a chapter about Glenn in the book. Um, and uh, I, I talk about him as being a magician. Uh, and I use the word um, very carefully because as a footballer, he, he, he can make the ball sit up and beg. I mean, he really was a hugely gifted footballer. And again, if, if, you, if you're too young to have seen him play, find, go look at some content of Glenn Hoddle. Really two-footed. I mean, you wouldn't hardly know that he was actually naturally right-footed. Um, could do anything with a football. And, and he, was, um, he was sometimes described as a luxury player. Um, but he was often, in order to get him into a team... Um, he'd be playing almost out of position. He'd be played wide in midfield, just to you know, just get it to bring his passing ability, his scoring potential, into a team. But the reason I called him as a magician was that he he could make a ball sit up and beg, and he knew how he did it. You 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 do come across massively talented footballers who really don't know. They don't know how they did it. Um, I actually tell a story in the Glen um, chapter about a guy called Frank Worthington, who yep. uh, played played for a few clubs. Really, really talented striker from the 1970s. Bit of a liver, um, uh, not not very Methodist, Frank. Um, and I was doing some filming with a couple of young Bolton strikers, uh, and Frank was 40 by now, and they, they were in the like League One. Um, but they were, they were making a bit of a name for themselves. And we had this idea of getting Frank down to give them some tips about, you know, how they could improve. They were like 21 and 22. And um, Frank prepared to do it, dusted off a pair of old boots and uh, came down to what was then Burnden Park, where they played near the centre of Bolton. And I said, right, well, camera's rolling now. And Frank said, yeah, first thing, he said, back to goal just roll a ball into me and he flicked it with the outside of his foot and pivoted and volleyed it into the top corner. And it was basically, now you do it. And I said, well, no, it's no good for that, Frank. We, 
you need to be telling Tony and David how, how you do it. You need to be explaining the technique. And Frank said, well, roll me another one in. And he flipped it up again and bollied it into the other top corner. He had no idea. He had no idea. He couldn't, he could no more teach them how to be a striker than he could teach them how to be a, a cliff diver. He didn't know how he did it. He just did it. And, but Glenn had that kind of talent, but he also knew how he did it. So he could relate to lesser players and, uh, and, and an attempt to bring them up to his level of performance. Now, the, in, in terms of Glenn, I, I do not want to go into the controversy of Glenn. That's not what I want to, to, to cover with you because that's been covered time and time again. But are you kind of shocked in the sense that he's not involved in the game in a coaching capacity given his talent to be able to, to educate players? Um, I, don't, I don't know that he has a great appetite for for that now I think obviously the last 18 months of his life have uh, uh, changed everything really Um, I think there was a time I'm trying to think which tournament we're at maybe in Brazil um, maybe at the Euros uh, when Roy's position was um, under threat and there was some talk about Glenn being brought in I think he was being either touted as some kind of caretaker or maybe even being brought back. And I think he had a, an enthusiasm for it then. But, I, I, you know, I, I, I think he's happy with his life as it is now. Um, but, yeah, he probably, you know, when he set up his coaching school and everything, and that probably was a time in his career when he, he would like to have been more heavily involved. Um, I mean, you say you don't want to go into the controversy about what he said, and, and I understand that. But in a way, it was a personal view. It was a personal view which he would always claim was misrepresented um, or misunderstood, maybe. Um, I, it was the... I, I, don't, I, I never like to sort of complain about any, anything remotely related to political correctness because I think most political correctness is fine it's it's actually just being considerate to your fellow human being um but obviously you know in in the twitter age and the nature of tabloid journalism um it does these things do get magnified and to the point where the original context is almost lost and forgotten and um maybe a little bit of that went on with um uh, you know, in the aftermath of that story, and maybe it tarred his reputation to the point where clubs had to think twice about employing him for a while. So we'll dive down to the ocean, and we'll make our home in a deep sea cave, and our shells will all be open. They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song. We'll dive down to the ocean, and we'll make our home in a deep sea cave, and Shells will all be open. They'll be filled with song. They'll be filled.